Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series in the book of Habakkuk called God and the Problem of Evil. So let's turn in our Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 9 to 17, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message called The Fall of Evil, Part 2. Over the years, as I've traveled to many countries and, you know, as I pastored a church for 15 years that, that dealt with people who spoke 12 different languages, I've come to know how very human culture actually is. Some cultures are rather direct. I mean, they communicate what it is they're thinking, and other cultures are more subtle. You know, I know of one culture where if your answer to a request is, well, I'll think about that, what you're actually saying is, yes. So don't say, I'll think about it, because the minute you say that, you've already agreed to the request. And so I remember asking, you know, how do you say, I'll think about it? And I was told you say, no. That means you're thinking about it and might consider it in the future. And so I asked, well, how do you say no? And I was told, well, there is no way to say that because in that culture, you can't give a final answer that closes the door forever to a request. Now, North Americans find that frustrating. I mean, we imagine that we are more direct, but really, I just don't think we are. You know, in our culture, I'll think about it often means no. I mean, we say I'll think about it only because we don't want to appear rude and say no in someone's immediate presence, then after that, we just don't get back to them. You see, we're as indirect as anyone, we just don't see it in ourselves. Human culture, human communication is a complex thing. It's the nuances that often trip us up. But as I've just illustrated, sometimes all those nuances are simply a cloak of deception. How are you, we ask, fine, we say. Uh, We need to get together sometime, we say, and uh, we both know we have no intention of getting together sometime. How do I look, we ask, and the question doesn't mean, how do I look? It rather means, would you please pay me a compliment? You see, we often don't mean what we say, and we really do have ways of hiding bad news from people. And for that reason, some of us are startled with how direct so much communication is in the Bible. That's especially true in confronting sin. No nuances, no subtlety, no formal talk or polite conversation. The Bible is direct, blunt, offensive, and indeed it tears away our barriers of deception with, well, almost violence. Remember how it was when the prophet Nathan confronted King David about his sin. He never uses the word mistake or bad judgment. He doesn't look around for some way to soften the blow. Instead, listen to what Nathan the prophet says to his king. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 12, 9 to 11. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. That is, you've despised God. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Oof, that's like a kick in the stomach. No, God didn't protect David's feelings. Indeed, he ripped off the bandages and made David look at the raw wound of his ugliness. You know, for those of us who have read through and studied the Old Testament prophets, I mean, that's how they read. The message is never nuanced, it's frank and it's direct, and it's forthright as it can possibly be. The God of heaven wants there to be no subtlety when it comes to his diagnosis and his condemnation of our sin. He names it for what it is. The book of Habakkuk is no different. 
When speaking of Judah's sin, he speaks of violence, iniquity, wrong, destruction, contention, paralyzing the law, perversion. And that's just in the first four verses of the book. Clearly, this book is startlingly honest. But the book also explains that God will raise up a merciless nation, that is Babylon, who will come to destroy Judah for her sins. But lest we think that God will do nothing about Babylon's sin, God explains that he never looks idly by. Indeed, God is planning something for Babylon as well. Habakkuk chapter 2 contains the word woe five times. Each one of these woes is a taunt. It's like a kind of thing you find in a children's playground where children might cruelly taunt another child. Now imagine that the parents of the children are instructing their own children to taunt one of the other children. Does that sound horrible? Well, it is. But God is instructing the nations to taunt Babylon. And that's surprising because Babylon doesn't look like the victim of the playground. Babylon is the bully. I mean, who dares taunt her? Babylon has beaten and plundered the nations around her, and yet the God of heaven is calling for a taunt against Babylon. And in Habakkuk 2, we find the word woe five times. Each woe is a taunt, like children dancing around the bully singing, liar, liar, pants on fire, and Billy is a silly boy, over and over again. Except these taunts are anything but trite. They're direct and they're forceful. But they're more. These taunts tell Babylon something she never would have guessed on her own. And so each of these five woes are five taunts. The first woe, the one we studied in our last program, is found in verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Woe to Babylon. Babylon has been destroying entire nations and stealing everything they have. But Babylon has not known that they were not really plundering the nations at all. They were, in fact, racking up a debt, and each nation they destroyed was only increasing her indebtedness so that when the time came to reconcile the debt, the cost for Babylon would buckle her knees and stagger her soul. Woe to Babylon, she doesn't know how great her dead load is. The divine debt collector will collect what is due. Now here, obviously, the the process of becoming a vast empire, I mean, the Babylonians had plundered many nations and they'd killed people and become wealthy. And according to Habakkuk's first woe, the oppression of others is like borrowing money. It's it's like going to the store and spending the day on a delightful shopping spree with, with your visa in hand and enjoying all the neat things that you've gotten for yourself until the bills arrive and the 17% interest begins to start. See, on that day, Babylon is going to find that is, it is she who is stripped bare. But how big are the bills that Babylon has racked up? Well, according to Habakkuk 2 verse 8, the Babylonians reckoned that human life was cheap. But God reckons human life is a precious thing, and it is God's reckoning that matters. Let me suggest an analogy. Imagine using your credit card to buy a car. And because you don't know the value of cars, you bypass the Toyota Corolla and you buy the Lamborghini. Woe to you! You won't be able to pay that debt. That's exactly what Babylon has done. They had put human life on their credit card, not knowing how precious human life is. Now, how are they going to pay that off when the payment is due? And that's no different today. You know, when we hear of murderers who seem to get away with their crimes, nothing of the kind is happening. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. God demands an accounting for each life. You may get away with murder in human courts, but you'll never get away with it in God's court. Those debts will be remembered. Those debts are more than you want to pay. They are a staggering amount, and that's why. In the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk takes to taunting Babylon. 
The unpaid and staggering debts of Babylon are coming due. Woe, woe to Babylon. Who would want to be her? But that's just the first woe. That's the first taunt against Babylon. Now comes the second. It's found in chapter 2. It's found in verses 9 to 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. You know, one of the things that Babylon did with the wealth of the nations that they had destroyed was they built what would have seemed in that day as an impenetrable and indestructible fortress. Verse 9 mentions the nest that is set on high. You know, the image is the image of an eagle that builds its nest in a high tree where no enemy can attack. Babylon seems to have done that with her city. You know, the walls around Babylon were so thick, you could actually march four chariots side by side on the top. Indeed, those walls were an incredible 136 feet thick. It's hard to imagine. The city had 100 gates, and each gate was made of pure bronze that could not be burned with fire or moved with a battering ram. So it would seem that everything was secure. Now, Babylon paid for all of that with the plunder of nations. The money that it took to build such a monument to their greatness was gained by the cost of human life, and that was shameful. But Babylon, as we've seen, didn't even remember the cries of their victims. Their victims meant nothing to her. They forgot about them and remembered them no more. But now here's the taunt. The beams from the woodwork, the stones from the wall, they're crying out, we've been constructed with blood. And we, the stones and the, and the beams, we are the evidence of your crimes. Woe to Babylon. She'll never be able to hide her crimes because the stones and the beams are like a massive billboard that advertise what she's done. It will be remembered before God in eternity. The world we live in is a fallen one. Bad things are happening all around us, but why? How could a God who loves us allow evil to exist in the world? These are the questions that Dr. John Neufeld answers in his series, God and the Problem of Evil. It's become popular for people to say that they're angry at God, but have we stopped to think about how God feels about us? What happens when you shake your fist at God when life gets hard? When we are in seasons of despair, what should our response to our Creator be? God will always act in a way that's consistent with His character, not with culture. Join us every day for more Bible teaching you can trust from Back to the Bible Canada. And if you'd like to support the ministry or receive more information about all the free resources available, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I feel that a little history lesson is in order. I wonder if you've ever heard the expression, the writing is on the wall. It means that your defeat is already upon you. Now, you know where that expression comes from? That expression comes from Daniel chapter 5. A man named Nabonidus was the king of Babylon, but he was out in battle and his son, Belshazzar, ruled in the city whenever his dad was gone. And Belshazzar was a fool who had drunken parties whenever dad was gone. I mean, after all, who could attack Babylon? It was an indestructible fortress. 
And one night, we know that it was in September of the year 539 BC. It's about 70 years after Habakkuk wrote his woes against the walls of Babylon. It was while Belshazzar was getting drunk that a hand appeared on the wall and began to write something that no one could understand. And in terror, they brought in a Jewish prophet by the name of Daniel, and he interpreted what that hand had written. God has numbered your days and found you wanting. And as Daniel was telling this to Belshazzar, at that very night, Cyrus the Great, commander of the armies of Persia, had found a way to divert the waterway that led underneath the walls of the city. He entered Babylon without even firing a shot. And all those massive walls and gates were completely worthless. They weren't a nest that was set on high at all. Here's the kicker. Because Babylon trusted in her walls, she had sent her armies out in battle, leaving the city virtually undefended. The Persians came in and defeated the city without any resistance at all. See, the walls of Babylon were not what the Babylonians thought they were. They really were never a safe nest out of reach of harm. You know, when the appointed day came in which Babylon's debts came due, no eagle's nest could drive away a sovereign God who always collects his debts. Look at verse 10 again. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. That was the debt, and the collector was coming. Woe to the Babylonians, taunts Habakkuk. Woe to Babylon. Your walls are helpless against the divine debt collector. Twenty years after conquering Babylon, the Persian king Xerxes decided to plunder the city entirely. He humiliated them completely. And that's what the beams of Babylon were already crying out. Now let's go to the third taunt or the third woe. I'm now reading from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city with iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I want to start with that last sentence that we've just read. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's not the first time that we find this sentiment in the Bible. About 150 years before Habakkuk, the prophet Isaiah had said exactly the same thing. Isaiah was looking ahead to the end of history, a time, he says, when the Messiah was going to arrive. In that time, says Isaiah, the Messiah will decide the fate of all peoples with righteousness, and at that time, the Messiah will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and kill the wicked. When that happens, says Isaiah, all evil will end, and the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and a nursing child will play over the hole of a cobra without ever getting hurt. Indeed, in that day to come, and here I'm reading Isaiah 11, verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know what's interesting about that quote is that even Isaiah was not the first one to say it. Indeed, about 700 years before Isaiah, Moses had said something very much like that. In Numbers 14, 21, Moses said that all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. He said that while Israel was on the way to the promised land. Moses knew that even though they were a struggling nation now, they were on the right side of history. All the earth would be one day covered with the glory of the Lord. And that brings us now to the beginning of the third woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood. Why is the violent man or the violent empire in trouble? Because they're on the wrong side of history, don't you see? Haven't you heard? History is moving towards a declaration of the Lord's glory. And instead, Babylon's labor, building a great city of Babylon with human blood, according to verse 13, is laboring merely for fire. See, it's all going to be burned up and destroyed. Think of it this way. 
Imagine for a moment that you were working with all your energy that you had to save up a nest egg, a wonderful retirement package. But now imagine that you're doing that in the old United States South, just before their utter defeat at the hands of the Union Army led by General Grant. Woe to you. You've been saving up Confederate currency. In just a little while, when the South collapses, all that currency won't be worth the paper that it's printed on. You were on the wrong side of history. And that was Babylon. The future of this earth will not go to those who pave the way in human blood. The future is that of the Messiah. Jesus Christ will come again, and when he does, he will reign, and his reign will be one of peace. Woe to you, Babylon. You're on the wrong side of history. Everything you labor for is in vain. Woe to you. So we've seen three woes or taunts against Babylon. First, your debts are so high, how are you going to pay when the divine creditor demands you pay? And the second woe, you haven't hid your crimes. You've placed them on billboards. So you can't even hide what it is that you owe the divine creditor. And third, you're on the wrong side of history and you'll soon be penniless when the divine collector shows up. Woe to you, Babylon. Who would want to be her? And now the fourth woe to Babylon. I'm reading Habakkuk 2, 15 to 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he was led to be crucified? Remember he was in agony. Blood vessels in his forehead were bursting. Great clumps of blood mingled with sweat were, were falling down to the earth. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does he pray? According to Matthew's record, in Matthew 26, verse 39, here's what he prays. My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know, that prayer explains Jesus' agony that night. But what is this cup that, that Christ so desperately didn't want to drink that night? The answer to that is that Jesus was using the image of the cup from the writings of the prophets. But what image was he borrowing? Well, let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword I am sending among them. Now, we might also read Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 33, where Ezekiel is going to talk about a cup of horror and desolation. And then he adds, you shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. See, that's said to nations and to Israel that doesn't want to drink it. They're going to have to drink it. You know, the cup of judgment in God's hands is so severe that those who are caused to drink it are driven mad and are launched into a nightmare of horrors. This cup is the judgment for sin. So when Jesus became our sin bearer, he drank the cup that was the sin for the sins of the whole world, and he suffered the horror for our sins. And, and that's why he was in agony that night. And that's why even the thought of drinking it made him shudder and sweat out drops of blood. But Babylon had no one to mediate for their sin. They had no sin bearer. They would be called upon to drink their own cup. And so imagine a cup of horror being handed into the hands of Babylon. They must now drink. And they recoil. 
They see the terror that's in the cup. They react with horror, but Babylon's hour has come. She must drink it. She has no choice. Woe to Babylon, she will drink that cup. See, these woes, the four out of the five that we've studied, well, these woes remind us that even while evil men and evil itself seems to have its day, we should never be tempted by evil or despair because in the immediate moment, evil seems to triumph. Satan may rage against us for an hour, but woe to him for the horror that awaits him. And what's more, when when we read of the destruction of Babylon, does it not drive you to seek the one who drank the cup in your place? Why would anyone want to drink that cup? And furthermore, don't envy sin or evil or the short-term rewards of wicked men and women. Indeed, take up the taunt from Habakkuk against Babylon. Woe to Babylon, for her hour is come. Indeed, be glad, for Christ our Lord bore the horror for us. And so, if you have not yet given your life to Christ, you want to do that. Give your life to a Savior who drank the cup in your place so that you might be accepted before God. Heavenly Father, I pray, help us to honor Christ and to put our faith in Him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. John, in your teaching today, you talked about the walls of Babylon, and they were they were so thick, the Babylonians felt, I guess, like they were, weren't vulnerable to anything, and yet they ultimately were. Sometimes we walk around in life feeling like we have time. Uh, we're not vulnerable. We don't have to worry about our spiritual lives today, but that may not be true. Yeah, it's amazing the kind of things that we actually trust in. I mean, one is people commonly trust in their own health because at the present, it seems like your health is in good shape and, you know, you've been jogging and eating brand, whatever else you do, and and you think you're okay because of that. Other people look at their own money and think that, you know, when bad days happen, I have enough hidden up for me that nothing can happen to me. So we all have, I think, our own walls. And I think what I want to say to to anyone who says, you know, I've got enough time Uh, to trust in, you know, I'll make my decision for Christ down the road. I mean, I would want to say to you, please don't do that. Uh, You have right now. You don't know whether you've got tomorrow. Um, Things happen so quickly and suddenly all the world changes. So please do not take for granted that you have anything but the grace of God that holds you at this very moment. So seize that grace and plead for mercy. Amen. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Sarah wrote, I have been saved for over 50 years, was just a little girl, in fact. Back to the Bible has been part of my life forever, and I've given to the ministry even out of my allowance when I was little. Dr. Newfeld brings scripture to life. There is depth yet practicality, challenge but hope. The world has changed, technology has made everything closer, ministries have changed. Yet, Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teachings. They have embraced technology while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work and I look forward to hearing you every day. We couldn't be more grateful for the encouragement and the reassurance that while we embrace new technology, the gospel message remains true. Sarah, thank you. 
Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. If you have a story to share, or if you'd like to share a gift of support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.